This little passage from Luke's gospel, just sort of tucked in the very middle, the heart of the gospel, about these sisters who have had a number of interactions with Jesus uh, throughout his life is so very powerful. And it it would be easy to just kind of read over it, skim over it, and move on. But I want us to dwell on it because there is something in it of great value for us. Uh, When I look at the state of Christianity today in the West, um, I see a lot going on. I see uh, conservative circles. There tends to be a greater emphasis on intellectual understanding of doctrine and biblical expertise and uh, moral positions and things like that. And in liberal circles, I see a, a, a focus primarily on social justice issues. And there are aspects of both of those things that are important for us to pay attention to. But the question that has been burning in my heart lately is where are the followers of Jesus for our, who are absolutely hungry for the presence of God and who want to see more of it on display in their lives and in the lives of their communities? And so when we look at the story of Martha and Mary, what we see is someone who shows hunger for the presence of God in an exemplary way for us. So Jesus is invited over for dinner because, you know, like he raised their brother from the dead and stuff. So it's the least they could do. So he's invited over. And Luke tells us that Martha is very flustered. She is... Uh, trying to serve him and she is frustrated with both Jesus and with her sister who is just lollygagging at Jesus' feet. <clears throat> and she says, Jesus, she rebukes the Lord, which is never a good idea. She says, Jesus, don't you see that I'm trying to serve you here and my sister is just sitting there. Can you tell her to come help me? The uh, The text tells us that Martha was distracted with much serving. That word distracted uh, in the Greek, paraspaomai, just so I can sound smart. Uh, It means this, to be pulled or dragged away. You see, when we make activity ultimate, we allow ourselves to be dragged and pulled away from the one important thing, and that is being in the presence of God. Now, Mary, she's sitting at the Lord's feet and she is just drinking in every word that comes off of his lips. She's in a posture of yieldedness or what we could say is a posture of hunger to be close to Jesus. She's listening to his word, but his word is coming alive for her, his teaching, because she's in his presence. You see, we can be good Bible readers, but fail to be good Bible readers in his presence where it actually comes alive for us and so that it is no longer just teaching, but it is life, the words of life. You see, those who make the presence of God ultimate in their lives will not be deprived of it. They will not be deprived of it, Jesus says. She will not be, it will, the good portion that she has chosen, the better thing is the one important thing. And Martha, I can't take it away from her. Now, to understand uh, the presence of God and what it means to be hungry for the presence of God, we first have to look at the Bible because there's a little bit of a history of how the presence of God has worked in human history. And so we're going to kind of take a brief dash through the story of the Bible to see this theme and to follow this thread of the presence of God. Adam and Eve, when they were first 
placed and brought into creation in the, in the beautiful paradise of the Garden of Eden, they enjoyed the full fellowship with God. The Lord God walked in the cool of the day in the garden with them. They enjoyed the fullness of the presence of God. You see, the garden was sacred space. It was sacred space because God dwelled there. God dwelt there with them. And God gave them this wonderful sacred space to steward, to be priests of his temple, his cosmic temple. And he said, but don't eat of this tree because the knowledge of uh, good and evil is for me and for me alone. And they disobeyed and they ate the fruit, deciding they were going to carve out their lives for themselves and take wisdom and knowledge into their own hands. And so the punishment for this, God says, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, they didn't fall dead when they ate it, but they eventually died. Why is that? Because they were banished from the garden, which is to say they were banished from his presence. And if you're banished from the presence of the one who is eternal life, you will eventually die. And so what we could say that the fundamental question for humanity is after the fall is how can the good and life-giving presence of God be regained? So that we could once again dwell with our creator and have eternal life. And that is the issue that has to be dealt with all throughout the scriptures. Now we move into the story of Israel and we see that God uh, makes provision. Uh, He gives what I would say is his provisional presence uh, through the pillars that he leads them with in fire and cloud through the wilderness. He comes and he dwells for a while at Mount Sinai where he speaks with Moses and gives him the law. And then he says to Moses, let the people make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. And that is the tabernacle because they're going to go mobile and he wants to travel with them. You see, and so what we start seeing is that despite human sin, despite our sin, God desires to dwell with us. Hallelujah. That's a good God. And so they have the tabernacle for a while. And then they have the temple, but you see there's in the tabernacle. And then when the temple is built in the temple, a place called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant went. And it was the place over which God's presence dwelt locally. And nobody could go in there because you know what happens if you go in there? Dead. Why? Because God's mean and evil? No, because he's so good and humans are not. Why? Because they've all been infected by what Adam and Eve did. And so... The only one who can go into this holy of holies is the high priest who is set apart by God and can only go in there once a year to offer the blood of sacrifice for atonement for the people. And so even though God is seeking to dwell with his people in proximity to his people, the people cannot come into his presence and there's still a problem. And the problem that they can't come into the fullness of presence is because of the stain of human sin can't enter the goodness and the glory and the splendor and majesty of a holy and perfect God. And yet God is still pursuing them. He's still seeking to draw them in. But the the Old Testament kind of comes to a close and the issue of regaining God's full presence has not been solved. And then we come to the Gospels and the stories about this, this Israelite who is born into the world. And John tells us this in this well-known passage speaking about the eternal son of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory 
That, that word dwelt, he came and dwelt among us. In the Greek, it's the same word used in the Old Testament for tabernacle. He says, Jesus came, God came in the flesh of Jesus, and he himself was the tabernacle where God's glory and presence dwelt. You see how relentless God is in moving towards us to pursue us despite our ignoring and our rebellion against him. The angel said, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so God reveals his glory in the human flesh of Jesus. And he walks the earth and everything he touches is infected with the good presence of God. Lepers are cleansed when he touches them. The, the deaf hear, blind see, the oppressed men, women, and children have, have, are freed from dark spirits that leave and flee in the presence of Jesus and at the command of his voice. And so we see the presence of God just emanating from Jesus and the glory of God emanating from Jesus and, and, and blessing and consecrating everything and cleansing everything that he touches. You see, in Jesus, we see a God who is determined to dwell with his creatures, to redeem them, to heal them, and to set them free. Now, the cross. The cross is the place where we see him offer himself up to do something about the stain of sin that keeps his beloved creatures from being able to enter into his good presence. You know, when Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last in Matthew chapter 27, uh, we read about this interesting little detail that Matthew gives us. He says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a curtain that was in front that divided the Holy of Holies from everything else in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was huge. It was 60 feet high. It was made of ornate, beautiful fabric, 30 feet wide. And it was a symbolic shield from the presence of God who dwelt in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died, in that moment that he breathed his last breath and died for the sins of the world, that temple was ripped in two and came down. What does that symbolize? The presence of God has now been unleashed in the world. And those who receive the blood of his sacrifice and are purified by it and cleansed by it now have access, unbridled, full access into the Holy of Holies, which is his presence. There are no limitations. There are no particular locations that you have to go to. In Christ, God's presence has been regained for us. What was lost in Eden has finally been regained. The glory and the presence of God shed abroad in human hearts and in our lives. And there is nowhere that we cannot access it. Hebrews is a very interesting book. It's written by an unknown author. If somebody tells you that Paul wrote Hebrews, tell them they are lying. Um, it's a bad, it's a bad theory. The author of Hebrews, um, has 
very beautiful, probably one of the most eloquent authors in all of scripture. He was clearly trained in rhetoric, very well, a master of the Greek language, but also a very sharp theological mind and could describe spiritual realities in such beautiful language. And Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 are basically a commentary on this whole idea that Jesus has opened up the Holy of Holies for us to, to enter into the full presence of God. Now, Ron, Ron, just read you something from Hebrews chapter 10. Go read, read Hebrews 9 and 10 on your own time to read the full commentary. He says this. He's talking about because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient now for us to enter the presence of God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, say confidence, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Say, draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hallelujah. You see, those who've been purified and made perfect by the blood of Christ, are being urged to avail themselves constantly of the opportunity to enter boldly into the presence of Almighty God. What a gift that we have. And now every day, every moment, those who are in Christ can enter the royal courts without fear, but with joy. You see, so many people, so many Christians settle for the concept of God's presence in their life and yet fail to enter the experience of it. It's really just a concept. We believe that we have access to God's presence and that sometimes we might hear an impression or something from him, but we actually fail to live a life where we are constantly pursuing and entering into that presence and experiencing it on a daily basis. Where are the people who are hungry for the presence of God? You see, Jesus said that he gives the spirit without measure. He's not holding back his presence. I love how uh, one author says this. He says, all measurements are set up on our end of the equation, determined by the degree to which our lives are in agreement with God and his kingdom. I would say, determined by the degree to which our lives are yielded to him and in pursuit of his presence. That will determine how much of it we experience. So what do we do? What do we do to to position ourselves? Because I want to be clear, all of us are saved by grace. We are not doing something to gain the presence of God. Jesus did that on the cross. He won it for us. And it's a free gift of grace. And everyone who believes on his name for the forgiveness of sins and believe that God raised him from the dead has access into the heavenly father's heart and into his presence. But there are things that we can do if we want to show God that we are actually hungry and desperate to know his presence and see his power at work in our lives. Let's talk about four of them really briefly today. The first one is this. Abandon respectability. So many of us keep our pursuit of God mediocre for fear of losing the respect of others. We keep it quiet. I love Pentecost. 
Because the disciples, these 120 uh, Jewish followers of Jesus are gathered together in this upper room and there's this great wind and power of the Holy Spirit that falls upon them and they begin to preach the gospel in other tongues in what appears to be a drunken manner because they're so filled with the joy and spirit of God, they just don't care. They don't care what the mockers say and there are people there mocking them and saying they're drunk, but they're filled with the spirit of God and the presence of God. It's a beautiful picture of being absolutely, recklessly abandoned to the presence and power of God. A question to ask ourselves, do I sacrifice the presence and power of God on the altar of dignified religion? I think this is a particular temptation for liturgical folks like us. There's a temptation to make everything about form and ceremony, and respectability. And we can lose and forget that those things can actually are outward forms that can become lifeless if the spirit and presence of God is not resting on us in our worship. You see, Jesus traded his respectability with the religious leaders of his day in exchange for being the locus of the Father's presence and power on the earth. He didn't care what people thought. He told his disciples, the world, the world hates you. They hated me first. I called you out of this world to be different for this very reason, to be bearers of the Father's presence. And the world's going to think you're weird and stupid and ignorant. And he didn't care. God, give us hunger to follow in his footsteps. Number two is this. Cultivate childlikeness. Some of us, you know, some people, they're uh, like, Praying, it's like they look like they're constipated. It's like very, it's like this very, oh, they're trying so hard to enter. And like, it's this very sterile, oh, I got to really be good. And Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When I get home from work, my kids, the look of glee on their faces, it delights my heart. My son, he can't, uh, he can't run yet, but he starts walking and he sometimes he squeals and starts waving at me. My daughter, who's a force to be reckoned with, starts barreling towards me and I kind of have to shield myself because she's like going to knock me over and she just, she throws her arms around me. Papa kisses me. You see, our Father in heaven delights when we come into his presence with that reckless childlike abandon. He's given us access to do just that. And we have to run to Daddy God, not to a distant, aloof grump who's reluctant to receive us. It's a false image of God that keeps a lot of people from their prayer closet. I think he's mean or angry. And he's a father, a good father. Number three is this, worship. And and I don't just mean come to church and sing songs. I mean develop a personal practice of praising God with your lips and your tongue. You see, Jesus, when he was speaking with the woman at the well in Samaria, she wanted to argue over the location of where God's presence dwelt. And Jesus said this, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then he says this, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
When you and I, in our prayer closet, and when you and I come together in this church, the Father, is His eyes are seeking, He is looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, who are not just speaking words with their mouths, but whose hearts are abandoned to Him in love, in gratitude for what He has done. And in, when you lift your heart in worship to the Father, His eyes rest on you in delight. He says, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I delight in. You see, in worship, we exalt the Father and sing the praises of the Son who has redeemed us and is, as our reading in Colossians told us today, presenting us to the Father as holy and blameless in His sight. It's like He takes us, Jesus takes us and He robes us in His own purity and His righteousness in white robes and He puts us before the Father and the Father says, My spotless bride, enter my presence. And He receives our praises. In our worship, just as he would receive it from his son. You see, worship is the natural response to the good news that Jesus has died so I can enter God's presence. It's the only appropriate response. The psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, some sometimes the way people worship that I've seen, it's just like, oh, so dry. It's like a duty, an obligation, a task. When is this going to be over with? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. See, Christianity doesn't deny us pleasure. It shows us that when we find it, we find it, we find pleasure when we love and we worship and we adore our good father. John Wesley said, sour godliness is the devil's religion. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Oh, there should be such joy when people come into our midst. They should say, what is it about these people? They, They praise their God with such joy, like they actually know him. The fourth is this, practice his presence. Our reading from Colossians 1 today had this little line in it that has always baffled my mind. It's talking about Jesus, the the cosmic image of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it has this little line in it and it says, In Him all things hold together. That is, He sees all. He's present everywhere. Every cell in our body, every atom, every molecule, every tree, every bush, every cloud... Every bolt of lightning, he holds it together with his own intention and will and power. And so there is no place that we can go where we do not have access to the presence of God, whether we're washing the dishes or in a church service or sitting alone and depressed in our bedroom, watching children play on the playground or flying on an airplane. If you're on one of those cheaper airlines, you really might want to practice the presence of God. Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I want to end with uh, Brother Lawrence. He was a monk in the 17th century. Some of you, has anybody read The Practice of the Presence of God? 
Yeah, there's a few. You can probably get this little booklet on Amazon for $2. It's just a tiny little thing. Um, it's a series of conversations and letters that he was writing with someone. But this was a man who was uh, disabled physically and couldn't do a lot of uh, special things in the monastery. So he worked in the kitchen and prepared food and ran, um, went on uh, errands for the monastery and things like this. But it was a man who was exemplary in his hunger for God's presence and learned how to what he would call practice the presence of God throughout the moments of his day, throughout all of his life. Because he knew the access he had because of what Jesus had done for him. And I want to read you uh, something that he said, and we'll close with this. When God finds a soul penetrated with a lively faith, he pours into it his graces and favors plentifully. There they flow like a torrent. Yes, we often stop this torrent by the little value we set upon it. But let us stop it no more. Let us enter into ourselves and break down the bank which hinders it. Let us make way for grace. Let us redeem the lost time.